Hey everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so our guest this week is Eric Olson, who just returned to the States from bike touring his way around the first three rounds of the EWS across Europe. And so Eric and I sat down to talk about that trip, including how he came up with the idea in the first place and how it came to be a reality, his gear that he used, how racing after doing all of that riding in between events went, and maybe most importantly, how he meant it to be rather than some super heroic effort on his part, a demonstration that bikes are actually really utilitarian transport and that you can get around on your big enduro bike a lot better than a lot of people probably imagine. It's a really fun conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it a lot. But before we get into it, I just want to take a quick moment to encourage you to check out our Blister membership. It includes a bunch of really good deals on things like wheels from We Are One Composites and a bunch of skis and other outdoor gear, and also gives you the ability to shoot us an email and get a response from me or one of our other fine reviewers on your next purchase of bikes or skis or gear or even things like talking through your suspension setup or how to make your current bike work better for you. We're here to help. So check out the link in the show notes and sign up for a Blister membership to get all of those sweet benefits. And with that, let's get right into my conversation with Eric Olson. Well, Eric, great to sit down with you. Just went for a little lap on an old favorite and now excited to talk about your little Europe trip that you just wrapped up. Yeah, thanks, David. Yeah, it was a good lap. It's dry and running fast here in Bellingham and it was like way safer on that trail than normal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's been a wet spring here so nice to finally have some stuff drying out and even see a little bit of dust maybe yep. won't be excited about it in a couple more months yeah. but right now it feels pretty awesome over the roots just let it eat <laughs> yep. well sitting down to chat because you just wrapped up a pretty cool trip to europe and for folks who haven't seen it you were bikepacking your way around the ews and so um i don't know if this was like the best idea or the worst idea or some combination thereof, but it uh, <laughs> seems like it was quite a cool trip and looking forward to talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Toured at EWS was like mostly a success, which uh, heading into the trip, I hadn't really done much bike packing. I'd never raced EWS. Uh, the idea was kind of a joke at first. And uh, we sent it over there with Dan Pearl, who works at Fanatic and people might've seen him on their YouTube. And we just, kind of sent it and bike toured around and we made it work. We made it to all three races successfully. I finished all three races and uh, Dan and I are still friends. So (laughs) I think uh, I'd call that a success and it was like a truly like good time. Like it didn't suck. So I'd say maybe I'd even try to do it again. That's pretty solid then. I don't know what more you want out of it. So I mean, you hinted at this, but you said that the it sort of started off as a joke, but where did the idea to do this first originate? Yeah, good question. I think I've always been kind of interested in this idea of riding to races and stuff. And it stems from actually like uh, these this team that was called the Kona Adventure Team, which was like Spencer Paxson, Barry Wicks, uh, like Corey Wallace, who are all like funny, awesome people. And like, I was just getting into like 
mountain biking and i i would see their stuff how they would ride between like pro xcts or like they would ride to like epic rides like races through arizona or whatever and that i thought was really cool and then since then like that those guys that team doesn't exist anymore but there hasn't been much of that going on and i thought uh it would be cool to try and do some of that myself now that i have like maybe gained enough confidence to just send it and so last year I decided to ride my bike from here, from my house in Bellingham, out to Dry Hill in Port Angeles uh, on the same bike I was going to race on. And that ended up going really well. I had a great time, like just riding out there and enjoying, like seeing stuff. And then rolled up immediately threw the pads on downhill practice and ended up racing better at that race. And so I was like, oh, that's funny. Like, this is a good way to. In, you know, enjoy the racing thing and take the expectations off and, you know, enjoy riding bikes in a, in a way that's a little different when you've been racing a lot and you're getting kind of burnt out on it and then qualified for Enduro World Series and uh, thought, hey, you know, like what other races could I ride to after that dry hill one? It's like, well, why not do the EWS? <laughs> and I think that's how it came to be. But yeah, at first it was definitely a joke, like just like, ha, that'd be funny. So this is sort of the thing you're just chatting about with friends and being like, huh, wonder if, and then maybe the kind of thing where you just say it to enough people and then it becomes real or something. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> once you, like, once you say it to like one or two people, it's like, well, now I've committed, you know, like, cause well, for me at least like, you know, you can back down from things, but I, I hate to do that. So it's like, once I said it, I, I had to do it. Like, even if only a few people knew about it, so. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> it was worth it, though. Yeah, I mean, the idea is awesome. And I especially love that this was your foray into the EWS and you were just <laughs> going to tack this little adventure on just to make the whole thing a little extra spicy, I suppose. But, I mean, when you were thinking this through and being like, okay, you know, mm -hmm. I have this idea. I am, I've told a couple people I'm, starting to think that it might actually happen what sort of apart from what you already said about wanting to just do something a little different and finding the idea of riding your bike between races to be a cool one were how were you thinking about the logistics of it was it like actually in some ways this might even be easier not having to deal with the normal travel logistics of traversing across europe or sort of what were your expectations for how this was going to go and how hard it was going to be to make it work? Yeah. Good question. I, I think, uh, well, I definitely like said the thing before I did any research <laughs> and then I was like, wait a sec, is this even possible? <laughs> and then had to like, you know, just Google maps, like how far is it from this place to this place? Like how far is it from Scotland, like Tweed Valley all the way to Petson in Austria? And it turns out it's like really far. <laughs> and so and it's like, oh, okay, you'd have to average 100 plus miles every day for two weeks straight. And so then it's like, okay, well, I probably like maybe I can do that. But I think I still want to be able to finish the races. So how am I going to solve this problem? Well, train transport, like train options in Europe are awesome. So we'll just take the train from Edinburgh to, to London and that will like make this doable. And so I was like, just kind of researching 
and like figuring out how to make it like in that sweet spot of like we want to ride like or I want to ride like big days but I also want to like make it like a viable way to do it like that anyone could potentially like do like I don't want to show that like I'm an ultra athlete and no one else is like capable of traveling by bike like like no I I prefer when like like with the Kona Adventure team to me that was inspiring because it was an alternative way of experiencing racing and they were still racing well, but like it wasn't like trying to be more pro or like trying to be like a pro F1 race team type of thing. It's like, we're doing it this way. Like bikes are fun. They're transportation. That's what I was trying to show. And so I was trying to figure out a route that would kind of be in that sweet spot. And luckily trains and everything like, and then bike paths and all that makes it doable. Um, but yeah, honestly, I didn't do that much research. I just kind of like Google Maps it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really like the idea of doing it in a way that shows that it's a viable and reasonable thing rather than trying to be totally heroic about doing insane mileage and then showing up for the race or something. Because to your point, I think, you know, a lot of folks listening to this probably are primarily using their bikes as a way to go do something fun, but it's not mm -hmm. necessarily just utilitarian transportation for a lot of people and yeah. reminding the world that that is another thing you can do with bikes is awesome and i'm for that so yeah yeah you and your bike's like what like five thousand dollars six thousand dollars like if you can't ride that for a, like a few miles to get somewhere like man that's that's a ripoff you know so and it turns out they're actually pretty good like they're pretty comfy and they can cover ground like i was impressed by that yeah we'll get it to the exact particulars of the setup a little more in a minute, but I'm, I guess, curious to talk a little more about the logistics stuff first. So, yeah, you said you took the train from Edinburgh to London to just cut down on mileage mm -hmm. and sort of make it a little more viable. So what did that end up meaning for how, like, how big a days were you doing on average and what were, what did that all look like? So sort of yeah. a typical day through this. Yeah, like a typical ride day was like, we tried to make it around 60 mile days. And like I think people who are bike touring, like that's a pretty standard number, like, or like just under a hundred K if you're yeah. working in kilometers, like anything over that. And you're going to suffer the next day. Um, no matter how like fit you are, unless you're like world tour road rider. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was good. We, and we mixed it up with like, we also took a train out of Paris and we also took a train like like we would hop on and off like if there's good train transportation and like shitty city riding you should probably take the train but if it's like beautiful countryside riding great bike paths it's way easier to ride your bike because like the logistics of getting your bike on the train can be a huge pain sometimes so it just depends and like you're kind of just figuring it out country by country and like germany for example the bike paths are just insanely good and then they weren't as friendly about like this one train like having our bikes on it so we just you know you figure it out um, yeah okay yeah and so to sort of piece it all together uh kind of give us sort of the highlights of the whole route and what the sort of the time frames look like ballpark you know you don't have to go day yeah. by day blow or whatever but roughly yeah. speaking yeah so we the plan was to fly to edinburgh scotland uh and then ride from there is like 30 40 miles to the tweed valley um but right off the bat, our flight got canceled to Edinburgh. So then like we had to 
buy an expensive flight to London instead. And then we actually took the same train just the other way that we were planning to uh, take like a week later. And so that worked out okay, but it was kind of like added distance and riding through London like a, a day to get from anyway. Yeah. So then first race, Tweed Valley, hung out there, camped in the pits, rode back to Edinburgh after that race, uh, took the train back down to London. And then we rode from London uh, about like, I think it was like a 60 or 70 mile day to uh, the English Channel to New Haven. There's a ferry there, hopped on that ferry um, to France. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then from there, we rode just a little ways to another train station and took that train into Paris. And then we actually spent some time just biking around in Paris. Like we, we, Dan and I paid for our own trip. Like we were going to have fun and like see some stuff. It was my first time to Europe and then, uh, carried on took, we were supposed to meet up in Frankfurt with the bike, uh, MTB news, like Germany, like editor. Cause he wrote an article about us and he's like, come stay here. But then like trains and like logistics, trying to figure that out didn't work. We ended up making it to, I think, Salzburg, Austria on some train. And then from there, we rode. I'm missing a day in Germany, too. It's such a blur, man. I don't it's even fine. know. You don't have to do the we rode in blur. Germany. We rode from France, like across the border into Germany and then made it to Salzburg. Yeah, I missed a day in there. And then we rode across Austria all the way to the border with Slovenia, where the second race. So that was like two weeks to make it all the way across from Scotland, like northern UK, down and across Europe all the way to Slovenia. And and riding across Austria is insane. Like you get into the Alps and just all of a sudden there's huge mountains. And yeah, it was it was wild to see the terrain change. Um, yeah. And then did that race there. And and then we connected with. The other kid, Matthew Fairbrother, who was featured on Pink Bike, who was also riding between the races. We'd met him at the first race through Win Masters being like, hey, there's this Kiwi kid. Like we saw him like as he was leaving. And then we were like kind of like like on WhatsApp, like communicating, like, how are you doing? How are you doing? And then we reconnected and we're able to ride together as a crew. And then his other friend, Lucas, also joined us. And we had a group of four for that last week, which was from austria to uh the dolomites to val de fossa in italy for the third round yeah so that's the rundown and yeah. then finally rode from val de fossa to venice and flew home right on yeah and so yeah you said you were averaging kind of 60 ish miles a day for the ones that you're on a bike for were there any days that from the just transit days not talking about the racing yet mm-hmm. that stood out as being the coolest or the hardest or anything that any superlatives, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So we did, um, like a hundred plus mile day, um, with the group of four of us, we rode, um, all the way pretty much from that race all the way to the Dolomites. It was like the flat section of the ride. And we wanted to just make it all the way there. Cause then we'd have two mountain passes the next two days because climbing is just so much slower. Sure. And it was like a heat wave was hitting. So we like started out in kind of this like flat river valley area like you're just kind of covering good ground but it was like 90 degree fahrenheit just like so hot and i think we were all just like kind of getting heat stroke and like i don't fully remember like part of that day (laughs) like we were all just like so out of it 
but we're just covering as much ground as possible. And like, then we made it like, we're starting to make it into the mountains, into the Dolomites. And all of a sudden the weather changed just like super dramatically. And we, we kind of saw like almost what looked like the beginning of like a tornado and like the clouds are moving super fast and like the mountain weather would just come in like super quick. And then all of a sudden, like something flies by. It's like, what was that? And it's golf ball, like, or bigger than golf ball size hail. And then it starts like coming in so fast. And so we hear it hitting the trees. It's like knocking, like hitting the, and we're just like, oh crap. Like we get, we just jump into the bushes and like hide behind these trees and we have our helmets on and everything, but we're just like, oh my God. And it's just coming in like crazy. It's like, and then it's shredding the trees, like branches are falling off the trees. Like, it's just like, if it hit you in the shoulder because you were behind a tree, like you'd, it would hurt like really bad. Like it would mess you up. And we were just like, what just happened? Like it was like super hot all day. And now we're just like in crazy mountain weather. And then we're like 80 miles into this ride. Like what's going on? But then that ended, but then it like was pouring rain and everything was soaking wet. And then we were just like trying to make it to this next town. And then there's lightning everywhere. I'm like, should we hide for, or should we just keep riding? And we end up kept continuing to ride. We had like 20 to 30 miles left in the day. I like, I think the fight or flight kicked in and I just like went so hard like the rest of that day and just like towed the squad like back. And it was just like, I was just like, we got to get there. We got to get there. Like it like woke me up. Like I don't even remember the morning and then that happened and the adrenaline hit and I cooled off and I remember the rest of the day. So that was a highlight. Big hundred mile day, a lot happening. And then we end up in this town, Lienz, Austria. And we're at like literally this ancient hotel that looks like the Grand Budapest Hotel, like fully cliched out, like old, like kind of decrepit, falling apart, like crazy old style hotel. And we're just in there with our bikes, like wet dogs, you know, just like, what just happened? Like, what is going on? <laughs> so, yeah, some days are easy and some days are crazy when you're bike touring. But like you remember the crazy days. It's memorable. Yeah, that sounds like a memorable one. And so another thing I'm really curious about is sort of what kind of reactions did you get from people that you were encountering? I guess separately interested in that answer, both from the other racers at the events, but then also just civilians that you're running into like as you're passing through all of these little towns and whatever else. Yeah. Yeah, like, so our first experience was at that race in the Tweed Valley. So, and I was kind of blown away by how many people at the race had caught wind of our tour to EWS because I was so busy traveling, but I'd like posted that we were doing it and then kind of just like got off social media because I was like trying to get ready and then we flew. And, and then when we got there, I think I'm like kind of, blurry on the whole thing but i think ews like shared it or something and so a bunch of we got really like really good publicity i was blown away and so then just like all of a sudden dan and i who are just kind of dudes were like kind of celebrity -y, like at the race and like the top like guys like win masters like oh i heard about it. and we're just like what is going on so that took some getting used to but it was really cool everyone was friendly and like it was interesting because multiple pros expressed that they wished they were doing the racing that way. They were like, Oh, I'm so jealous. Like, that's like such a fun way to do it. Like you guys are going to experience so much stuff. Like I wish I was like 
doing it that way. And I was like, well, you probably, you can, like, there's nothing stopping you. But yeah, it was interesting. And so like within the race community, people were actually pretty intrigued. And then also Matthew was like doing, like getting started. And like, everyone's like, wait, what? You're actually going to like not take a train? Because that was his plan. He's like super light, not sleeping for two weeks. So different strategies, right? And so there was kind of like a buzz going, which was really cool. And I wasn't, I kind of expect that people wouldn't know. And so I was kind of blown away by that. Um, and then the EWS, like, yeah, like right when we rolled into town, <laughs> it was wild. So we'd, we'd just ridden from Edinburgh to Innerleithen, which is where the race is. And then first thing we see, we run into Miles and Andrew and Grayson, which are friends from town. So first of all, we're like, wait, we just traveled all the way around the world and we see the same people. <laughs> And it's like, what's up? Like they caught us as, and then the next person we run into is Chris Ball, who runs the EWS, but we're kind of out of it. We're like, oh my God, you're Chris Ball. Like, hey, and he's like, yeah, I'm really stoked on what you're doing. And we're just like, okay, weird. And then the next people we run into is like Jesse Malamid, Remy, Govan, Miranda Miller, Richie Rude, like, and they're all like, hey. And so like right off the bat, we were just like, oh my God, like what's going on? That was cool. And then, yeah. From then on, people were just like, hey, you're those guys. Um, but yeah, and then to answer the second part of the question, like once we left the races, it was cool. And like, we're kind of like, okay, phew, we're not like fake celebrities anymore because we're not built for that. Um, and we're like, cool. Like, and then just like meeting people on the road, like, like a road rider would go by, like, what are you guys doing? Like, I live around here and we'd talk and that was super fun or like, on the train, there'd be another like commuter with their bike and they'd be like really interested and like, where are you guys going? So that was cool. And then in like London, we went to this like bike shop cafe that was like the mechanics were stoked and like, yeah, it, it just shows that the bike community is like worldwide and like everyone's intrigued by what are these stupid Americans doing? And like, yeah, it was, it was cool to see bike shops are all the same and like really friendly mechanics and and then like, as we were leaving that bike shop, there's this guy who just was like going to work and he's like, Hey, Hey, like I'm mountain bike. Like, what are you guys doing? And like took a picture with us and then like posted on Instagram and like tagged us. And it was like his first time posting since like 2016. And that like got him fired up enough to like log into Instagram for the first time in like five years. And like, it's just funny to see. Uh, yeah. People were really stoked on it, which is great because hopefully they'll be inspired to like go ride their bikes out there. Yeah. That's awesome. And I guess another angle on this that I'm very interested in hearing is how you talked Dan into doing this whole thing. So I actually first learned that you were doing this from Dan. He was a couple okay. months before you left. He was like, yeah, I just agreed to do this thing. <laughs> uh, but I, I remember he was, I think he was hurt at the time. So he hadn't been riding. Yeah. He wasn't training. And then he was like, and then I'm also going to formation formation to dig for Hannah Bergman. <laughs> so I'm not going to get to ride then either. Yeah. I'm not sure when I'm going to get in shape for this, but I guess it's happening. It so on. yeah. Yeah. No, like Dan, it was way too easy to convince him <laughs> to come. I don't think he really like thought about it or like he did, but he just said, yeah, like I'd asked a few people, not a ton of people, but I was like, do you want to do this? Like maybe join me on this bike tour through Europe. And everyone was like, hell no, <laughs> like 
no, go away. Like, leave me alone. And I was like, all right, fine. Like, and I was pretty like, like convinced that I was going to do it solo. But then like, I was like at Fanatic and I was like, hey, just reminding you guys, like if anyone wants to join me for this ride for a month in Europe. And then I think somehow that like Dan started thinking about it uh-huh. and he like texted me and Dan and I know each other pretty well at this point because I'm down there bugging them at Fanatic all the time. And uh, he, he texted me. He's like, yeah, I think I think that would be fun. I think I would like to go. And I had been like, if someone wants to come, like, would you help me like get video and stuff? Because I like to make videos. And uh, he's like, yeah, like I've got a camera and like, I think we could do this. And yeah, I was like, wait, really? Like, <laughs> you're saying yes. <laughs> like, no one says yes to this. So yeah, it was great. And I mean, I love Dan, like really, like we, if we weren't good friends before, now we are. <laughs> yeah. And he did a great job. He got like video footage at races on the road like so yeah it's cool because i can't really remember like half the trip so we have footage to remember no that's good and the videos that you put out were sweet we'll link to some of that stuff in the show notes yeah uh, thank you people can check those out but it was fun following along uh yeah i've been doing rough like vlogs and i'm not even through like all the vlogs yet but my goal is to put together more of like a cohesive and like beautiful video that kind of summarizes the whole thing and try and like actually like put that out so that people can kind of see what it was about but yeah like for the folks like for my mom and dad and stuff it was fun to like put out the like vlogs that I slapped together like at the races just to like just to do it just to kind of have people follow along and people were texting me and stuff and saying they enjoyed that so it was encouraging yeah it was cool so one of the other things I think is most interesting about this whole deal was just sort of figuring out the gear portion of it. Mm-hmm. And we were chatting about this a little bit while we were out riding earlier, but you were sort of talking about how bike travel cases are a pain in the ass. And so you've yeah. gotten pretty good at the transporting your bike while you're flying or whatever portion of it, but then mm-hmm. you get where you're going and you have this giant thing that you now have to deal with and, towed around with you and so take us through your whole setup and how you made all that work because you you know showed up in the airport and then we're just having to hop on the bike and like you said in that chat on the ride you wanted to be able to ride out of the airport with all your stuff and not have a bike bag and a bunch of other nonsense to deal with so how did you do it yeah yeah the the dream like you said has been to fly into an airport and then ride my bike away from the airport. Like that's the goal. And bike travel is a pain. And if you have a a reusable case, like it's like a boat anchor you have for the whole trip. And like you have to have a large enough vehicle to transport it and all that. Or you can go like the bike box method, but then you either have to then keep the bike box with you, which is then the same as the travel case, or you recycle it and track down a new bike box. Um, from a bike shop, but that can be kind of challenging and just, you know, you're in a country that doesn't speak the same language and you're flying into a different airport that you're flying out of. So I wanted to figure out a travel system that would allow me to fly and then it would be light and compact enough and maybe like multi-purpose. And so, yeah, we, so Loam Equipment is the brand that made our bags. They're here in Bellingham, Washington. And I was like, Hey, like, do you guys think that this is possible? And like, 
they were amazing. And at first they were pretty skeptical, but then I convinced them that we could try and make it work. And we made this bag that converts between a travel case, like an ultra light kind of travel case. Like I took the rear triangle off and everything, but then it turns into the front roll that lives on the front of the bike and carried my clothes the whole way through the trip. Um, and it worked amazingly. It worked. So yeah, my bike made it there all good to go, put it together in the airport in London, rode away from the airport. And then it made it all the way through the trip. And by the time we made it to Venice, uh, took my bike back apart, put it in the bag and it made its way home. And it did like three transfers, like got stuck in Paris for a week and it didn't fall apart. So I'm stoked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think it was a good like prototype. Like now I know there's things that we can improve and yeah, I don't know how big of a market there is for this kind of thing, but I don't care because it exists and now I can go fly somewhere and ride away from the airport. That's pretty cool. And for the rest of the bag situation, kind of take us through what you had as far as bags for carrying stuff and what you were bringing with you and kind of run down on the rest of the gear outside of your bike. Yeah. Um, so we, Dan and I were not experienced bike packers. And so we were really lucky that Rachel and Alan at Loam Equipment were able to help us out. Um, and they made us custom frame bags that fit in the front triangle of the Forbidden, which actually has a good amount of room, which was sweet. And then, so we had food and miscellaneous like tools and things stored in there. And then we had a rear bag that was um, our like shelter. We had a like outdoor research bivy sack, like the helium bivy, and then sleeping pad, sleeping bag. Um, and then on the front, we had a front roll with all our clothing. Um, that was kind of the, so like food, shelter, clothing kind of separated there. Um, and then <laughs> Dan had a big camera backpack and I had a backpack with a set, an entire set of 29er wheels with like enduro tires strapped to my back. Uh, and I did that because I thought it would be funny to be like, I wanted to be fully self-supported, but then people were like, you need to have slick tires and knobby tires. And my original plan was I wanted to ride just knobby tires the whole time. But then enough people said it to me that I was like, oh, fine. But I hate switching tires. <laughs> so I just thought, oh, I'll bring a whole extra wheel set, strap it to my back, and it'll look really funny. And it did look really funny. And then I made it like two weeks, and then my back started to hurt. But I was kind of committed to the bit, and that was fine. But yeah, if you were going to do this, don't, don't put weight on your back. That's what we learned. <laughs> the less weight on your back, the better. If you can do no backpack, perfect. That's ideal. I also had a full gaming laptop for editing videos on my backpack too. So don't do that. Don't carry that. <laughs> Those are things you don't actually need, but I brought them because uh, I thought it would be kind of funny to like try and put out videos during the trip. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah. Those are the things I learned that you, you don't, uh, you don't want to like have that weight on your back. That's really it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds heavy and bike packers who have experience would know that we didn't know that <laughs> <laughs> right but i mean i do think that having the slicks to me sounds like something that you would want especially just not even from the perspective of not destroying your race tires just riding them on pavement yeah. that much distance but so how would you manage that if you were to do it over again now? i would just ride the knobby tires the whole time i think i would have just committed to my gut feeling and some people like are more down with just switching tires back and forth. I just like, it's like one of my least favorite things, even though it's not actually that hard. And so 
I just would rather just like, I want to be self-sufficient, but I hate switching tires. And I have a rule for myself that I won't switch tires at races because I it like makes my, makes me have a bad time. So I don't know. I would just ride Navi tires the whole time, but Dan did it the smart way. And he sent his Navi tires with the forbidden team. And like, he was just like, I'm okay. Not being fully self-sufficient. And that was smart. So if you, if you're willing to just swallow your pride and not be like fully self-sufficient, that's actually the best way to do it. And that's what Matthew did as well. Like he was carrying, he was covering insane distances, but he had like a light setup and like no one like questioned his self-sufficiency. But in my head, like I want to be fully self-sufficient. Like I want it to be real. Like I could do this with no one's help, but that's just me. Um, anyway, yeah, I would. I would just commit to the Navi tires. I rode the Navi tires from the last race to Venice because I sent my other wheels back through Munich with my teammate, Andrew. And that was great because I had the weight off my back. And then I was in a good test of riding with the Navis. And it was really not as bad as I think people think it would. You just pump them up really hard. And it didn't seem to like wear them out super fast. Like I think that is more overblown in your head than like, like people think that it's going to wear your stuff out and it's way more drag, but it wasn't really that bad. It was definitely better than carrying an entire extra wheel set on your back, which is obvious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess neither of those options sounds awesome. And I, I and like you, I'm someone who does not have a lot of bike packing experience and kind of just trying to think, this, especially not trying to do it on an enduro race, but certainly yeah. so. Yeah. But I think your point earlier, actually about how the, forbidden dreadnought that you were on is maybe like in a funny way the almost optimal bike packing enduro bike just because there's so much room in the front triangle yeah. for a frame bag totally checks out just because of shock placement and the suspension layout essentially but um yeah you, you got some room to carry some stuff on there so that kind of makes some sense i guess another thing that i'm just curious about with this is how i mean i guess it's interesting because this was your first experience in the ews at all mm -hmm. but how did it feel like doing all of this bike travel and doing all that extra effort of riding between the races and whatnot impact the experience once you actually got to the race and how did that impact your results do you think yeah i mean it's hard to say i felt like there was a bit of fatigue that built up of course over the trip but for me at least i was gonna be a solidly like pack fill racer it's your first like at your first season of ews you're like figuring it out everyone's insanely fast i knew i wasn't going to be like blowing people out of the water and so i think in the end it, it didn't matter too much um yeah i don't know like i think i was still able to like race i was focused like i wasn't completely exhausted and like we were able to get there like with at least like a day to rest before practice. So like it was honestly a viable way of doing it. Like, and that was kind of my goal to show it. Like you can do that. Like if, if you're a fast enough, fit enough racer to do Enduro world series, even if you're like pack fill, like I am like, you probably have the fitness to enjoy a bike tour between the races. Like, and, and I mean that by like enjoying it, you know, like it was actually fun, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as far as I can tell, like it helped me like gain a good base for the next EWSs, like in Whistler and stuff like that. So 
yeah, I have no regrets. <laughs> that's awesome. And yeah, I guess that was one thing I was going to ask about too, is that if you were, how much kind of time you were managing to give yourself to rest once you showed up to a place before you had to just switch gears and dive straight into the racing. But yeah, yeah if you had a day off between practice and then yeah. kind of recover at least a little bit, then I'm sure that helped to some extent anyway. Yeah. One thing I learned was a lot of people show up even earlier than I thought and they track walk every like the people who are like there to win are like track walking because EWS you only get one it's strict one practice lap and so the way that people get out there ahead of time if you're a pro team you show up a week early and you walk like downhill style all these tracks which you know people debate whether that's in the spirit of enduro but that's the way EWS is now and um I didn't really do any of that. I never walked a track and I think that is like a disadvantage. So maybe, you know, but at the same time, like, is that what I would want to be doing anyway? I don't really know. Like that's maybe the only thing that I was kind of disappointed with Enduro World Series about is like that culture of track walking was kind of weird to me. Like I've never experienced that in Enduro and I don't know if that's like the Enduro that I want to be a part of, but so be it. And otherwise like, all the courses were super sick. Like the racing was well run, except for the one last stage of the whole trip where I almost hit a school group that was in the course, but otherwise well organized. And uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it was cool. But yeah, track walking, didn't really do any of that. And I think you could argue that that's a disadvantage. But I think if you're bike touring, you could schedule it in a way where you'd still be able to do track walk if you really wanted to. <laughs> Tell us about almost hitting a school group i have some <laughs> questions there what I, happened i do too so yeah it was the last stage of the whole trip basically it was this long stage that started kind of alpine it was like well over 10 minutes of racing and like halfway through i look ahead and there's just like 15 kids in my race course and Luckily, I was able to, like, there was good sight lines, so I was able to kind of slow down, and, like, I only, like, brushed one of them with my handlebars, but they were, like, freaking out, like, trying to get out of the way, but I was like, what are you doing? Like, you're in a race, like, and I think they interviewed with a few racers, at least, but the course marshal was just, like, on her phone, so that was not well managed, but the race organizers were like, oh, my God, and they were freaking out, and they reached out to me, and, like, were trying to get a high-quality video to, like, find the person who was leading the school group and like talk to them and talk to the course marshal. So they're trying to deal with it and it didn't happen to like the top five. So that would have been a whole bigger shit show, but yeah, it was fine. It was, it was just kind of funny to be honest, <laughs> but yeah, it could have been really bad. <laughs> yeah, Smoke for sure. Kid. That's scary. So yeah, good thing it didn't go worse than that. But, yeah. uh, what's a, What's another, uh, another thing on the whole list of crazy stuff that happened on the trip? You know, it's like, yeah, at that point, I was like, I'm just going to roll with whatever happens, you know. Maybe there's going to be another thing in the course and five feet down. Like, ready for anything. <laughs> Maybe it'll know. hail. <laughs> so, yeah, that uh, run in with the school kids sounds like a wild one. <laughs> Did you have a favorite race out of the three or a favorite stage or any more positive highlights, I guess, from the actual races? Yeah. Oh, man, it's really hard i've been like thinking about that all three of the races were super sweet and like totally different terrain um 
in Tweed Valley, it was like, in a way, it kind of felt like some Galbraith stuff, like lots of trails, like kind of similar terrain. They get good rain. The dirt's a little bit different, but there was like roots and all that. Um, the coolest part there was like starting up in like that heather and then you'd drop into the trees and like it'd be like squealing through tight trees. And then the second race, the highlight, I guess, was just the like hardest enduro stage that I think anyone's ever raced. It was like 15 minutes or 14 minutes of like all the way down this ski resort of just like you'd get arm pump in the first three minutes and then just hold on for the rest of it, like properly steep, like rough, no rest. Um, and like, there's, that's where those photos of like Richie rude blowing his hand off the handlebar and then like saving it and bring it back on. Like it was gnarly. Like everyone was saying it was super gnarly. And that was cool to experience that like level of racing. Like it's like, that's a legit trail to race down. Like it was fun to just try to finish. And then the third one, I think, Maybe the most like enjoyable stage was actually the one where I almost hit the kids, which was like all the way from the Alpine all the way down in this town. And then you end with like funny, like urban, like stage stuff for a bit, like right into the middle of town. So just the full experience. I don't know. Like it's really hard to pick a favorite because it was actually all like proper trail. And I was impressed. Like you hear about how weird or like janky and like not fun like Euro racing can be. And I didn't really find that to be true, which maybe I just got lucky. So, yeah, uh, I do want to just take a moment to marvel at that save of Richie's that the photos of you haven't seen those. His hand is like a foot below his handlebar, Dude. just <laughs> gone. And he didn't crash. Yeah. I cannot fathom how that Dude. happened, but unreal. Like the core strength, and just <laughs> yeah. the determination. <laughs> Like, to be, yeah, and just to be, like, with it enough to be, like, no, like, a, like that's superhero stuff for sure. Yeah, just absurd. Yeah, uh, well, a, I know multiple people crashed because they just couldn't hold on. Like, their hands just fell off the handlebars. Mm -hmm. Like, that's unreal. <laughs> yeah, he's a maniac. Um, yeah. Well, and, and it was cool to see, like, Jesse felt almost like he he thought he maybe did bad like because he posts his gopro stuff which is right. huge like jesse's cool for that for sure and at the end he's kind of like oh man it was so hard to hold on and then richie crosses and he's and it's like and jesse wins and he's like i won whoa like like no one felt good on that stage uh -huh. and that's kind of like yeah but it was like you're just stoked because you're like i just survived like <laughs> yeah it was fun so i guess this is circling back a little bit but then to talk about kind of the logistical stuff a little more. So you were, I mean, you mentioned you had the bivy sack and stuff. You were primarily camping places, right? It was about 50-50 or maybe even more like hostels, Airbnbs later okay. in the trip. We, as it got hotter and like, yeah, it was just, it was easy to get a place to stay. And so we did that. But then the camping worked well when it was like, you couldn't find a place to stay and there's, a lovely farm field or whatever and great yeah it's good to have both options yeah right on okay fair enough and i'm also curious just about kind of race support stuff like obviously you mentioned a little bit you, the forbidden team was there and mm -hmm. they were carrying some stuff for dan kind of were you bringing kind of much in terms of tools and spare parts for yourself obviously you had the wheel set but apart from that like how are you managing that kind of stuff mm -hmm. versus getting help from them 
Yeah, well, so Forbidden was awesome and like offered the help. And then I, being super stubborn, wanted to be fully self-sufficient. So I still brought like every tool to work on my bike within reason, which was still super light, like I had light Nipex, like little plier and all that. Because I had to have the stuff to put my bike together at the airport. So that's like most of the stuff you need to work on your bike. Um, and then you have like the stuff you carry in your camelback for an enduro. So like I could, like I was able to be self-supported, but then at the same time I could go over there and be like, Hey, like, would you be willing to like help me? Like, can I use your bike stand? And they were super nice about that. So, and I think anyone who was at EWS, as long as the brand they're riding is there, it's like super friendly. Like if you're on a Santa Cruz and you go to Santa Cruz, they'll probably treat you really well. If you're unforbidden, they're going to treat you awesome. That's what I found. Like it was, it was great. Maybe not every brand, but like the ones who get it are going to help you out, which is really cool. Okay. Right on. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And uh, so how much were you actually carrying in terms of tools though? You mentioned the Nipex pliers and some other odds and ends, but how big did you go here? I mean, it's doable to be like fairly light. Like I had my normal stuff, which is like multi-tool and then like the one-up pump with the tool in it. And that has a lot. And then like that pump lives on that pump holder that I've, I 3D print that goes in my frame bag. And like, I feel like it's pretty easy to build like a compact, like usable toolkit. And if you're doing enduro, you've probably done that anyway. So yeah, it was, it was like fairly light. Um, you know, and then you have like tire plugs and a spare tube and whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, that's enough to get you through just about anything. The only thing I didn't have was, uh, I, I developed like a bottom bracket Creek, like the last week. And I obviously didn't have like a bottom bracket tool. So like, I don't know, I would probably still not bring a bottom bracket tool, but yeah, that seems a little much. And, and there's bike shops you can go to like, for sure. Yeah. That's the the great thing about bike touring in Europe and I, in the U.S. I think you'd still be able to have success in most places, but like the infrastructure and then the closeness of all these towns together, like why not stay in a an accommodation? They're so easily accessible, and why not like just plan day by day, like because you can always find a place to eat and you can always find like it. It's it's pretty fun to just kind of go day by day, and. Uh, I don't know, like, I haven't bike toured enough to know that if, if the U.S. is much harder. But, yeah, Europe's, like, quite um, accommodating of bike travel. And there's people on e-bikes just touring all day, every day, having a great time. So there's definitely a lot of folks getting out there and touring. So you feel like you're you're not alone. You're not getting yeah. run off the road by big trucks or anything like that. Right. People aren't rolling coal on you in Europe. So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah that's good yeah one of the things i think was really cool about this was that you used it as an opportunity to raise some money for world bicycle relief so tell us about that and kind of where that idea came from and what you hope to get out of it yeah thank you yeah i i mean i just wanted to show that bicycles are transportation because like genuinely it can be like frustrating to see that uh as racing gets more professional it just more and more money gets thrown at things and like huge vans and like, I mean, world cup is different than EWS still like EWS is still smaller, but like the huge trailers and like your bike, like is just traveling around in a car to ride a lift 
and then you ride a few runs. Like, I just think that's kind of absurd and not very like, um, that's not the vision of biking that I, I want people to see. So, um, yeah, I, I wanted to kind of raise a little bit of money for world bicycle relief if I could, um, because they are providing bikes to people as transportation. And I think that's super cool. And we were using bikes as transportation. So maybe people would be interested in donating because they thought it was cool and they have. So that's been great. So shout out to everyone who has. And uh, I think that fundraiser is still going. So if people hear this and want to donate, that would be sweet. Um, and then also I was donating 50% of the proceeds of my jank components orders, which is not a ton, but shout out to everyone who ordered and then was willing to wait for the month for me to fulfill the orders. Um, and then kind of that consolation prize is that the 50% of the proceeds go to World Bicycle Relief. So shout out to those people. And yeah, I think it's just cool to think about bikes being provided to people because of this trip. Absolutely. And we'll put a link to that fundraiser in the show notes. So if folks are listening to this and want to chip in a little bit, it's right there. Check that out. You've touched on a few of the points already, but I would like the tire one being kind of a, a key thing. But I'd be curious to hear if you were to do this all over again, what lessons have you learned? What would you do differently next time besides the tires? Kind of. Yeah. What were the key takeaways from that perspective? Yeah. Um, it's a good question. I've just been like at the very beginning of starting to think about that because you're not even sure if you want to do something like this again at the very beginning, but I think I do. It was a lot of fun. I would of course try to have no weight on my back. Like that's just like kind of the, the main thing I would tell people if they were going to try something like this. And most bike touring folks probably would be like, duh, like, we could have told you that, but I had to learn it myself. Um, and then I think maybe I would try and like, well, so you start to learn the ins and outs of like train travel. And then like that can be almost harder than just riding for the day. But I was kind of like inclined to go that way because I had these huge, huge wheels on my back. So I think if I didn't have the wheels on my back, I would feel way better about riding a bit longer every day and then I wouldn't have the stress of trying to catch a train and then also I'd be more in kind of like a bike packing than a bike touring mindset and then camping a little bit more and then you'd start to save a little bit even more money like it was a pretty frugal trip anyway but I think you could do it even cheaper so that's kind of I think the direction I want to go with it a little bit lighter a little bit cheaper um and then yeah I think even like I mean, obviously the logistics of like filming and like creating a production out of the whole thing was like super fun and I enjoy that. But like, obviously you can simplify the trip if you don't do that. Like Dan had a whole camera set up on his back and like, it's super fun to do, but you don't have to do that. So sure. you can make it way easier on yourself by avoiding that. Along those lines, what are your plans for the rest of the season and what's to come? Yeah, I actually it's, it's gonna, it, there's a lot of exciting things. I, the reason I'm stuttering a bit is because, um, I'm not allowed to talk about certain things that are happening, which is very exciting. And that's classic podcast bullshit, but like, that's just the way it is. 
And I didn't expect like a couple weeks ago to even be able to say something like that. Like the plan was to just race the next few EWS rounds, Whistler and then Vermont and then uh, Sugarloaf, the East Coast ones. And I was planning to ride between those two East Coast ones. But something came up and uh, people have to wait and see what that's about. So that's exciting, but also kind of a bummer that I can't talk about it. I wish I could say, yeah, I'm going to bike tour the next ones because that was the plan like a few weeks ago. But um, yeah, exciting stuff. Trying to catch up with jank components and work on that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like everything is so up in the air because this trip has opened up new opportunities, which is wild. And uh, yeah, I'm just really excited about that. But yeah, like long term, like it would be really sweet to have almost like a self-supported category in EWS. And I think that would be super fun to see if there could be like kind of a sub like underground series within the EWS, like of people getting after it and enjoying bike touring between these races and kind of seeing like who can do it for the least amount of money or who can do it like the fastest or like different ways of experiencing the same thing. And then having kind of that aspect of EWS, which is starting to become more professional, retaining some like kind of privateer or kind of like, I don't know, whatever vibe bike touring to between EWS is, like having that thrown in there. I think the organizers and the people running the race thought it was cool and they they value that. And it would be sweet to kind of keep the ball rolling and build some community there. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, I don't know quite what the right term is, but there's some flavor of kind of grassroots scrappiness to it that's sweet and keeping some of that going, I'm all for it. Yeah, that's that's the part of biking that I think I love and a lot of people love. Like having stuff turn more and more pro is cool, but also like so many people love mountain biking and just cycling culture in general, not because of that, but because of like alley cat racing and like all sort of like kind of grungy like whatever like we we get our hands dirty we we're working on our bikes in the airport whatever like i think it's cool to keep that going and have that there like that's why i like biking you know so yeah i'm gonna keep trying to do it and if other people are stoked like the more the merrier it's a lot of fun we'll see you out there i like it you touched on jank components a little bit but let's go there a little more specifically what's the story what do you guys do yeah jank components uh was me trying my best to avoid getting a real job out of college uh and i was like 3d printing some just like miscellaneous kind of like prototype parts uh for my friends like pump holder or whatever like just totally boring like lame little bits that we couldn't buy um but then enough people were interested that it became a little website and a little business and makes just enough money to fund me going to Europe and doing some racing, uh, which has been sweet. Um, but yeah, it's like, I guess Jank Components is like a, a shoddy 3D printed bike component company <laughs> that I that I run out of my basement. Um, but yeah, it's fun. It's a lot of fun and I enjoy solving problems for people. And, um, and then I guess Jank just being me is like, other projects as well. Like I helped create a, or I had the idea of doing kind of like a Tommy Caldwell style, like community mountain bike video, which uh, 
if you're familiar with like tea and biscuits or like that kind of video, like slice of British pie. Like I just love that stuff. So I was like, let's make a Bellingham version um, through my roommate Dario, who's helped with jank and designed the uh, tire plug, like the stands dart adapter for the one up. He connected me with his friend, Logan Patrick Nelson, who does the videos for Jeff Kendallweed. And then I bugged him enough and we, he helped film this whole video and then other people helped like Dan Pearl helped film a segment and we made a whole community winter mountain bike edit and it's called atmospheric river rats. And it came out, we did a premiere. We raised money for Vamos outdoors project, which is a local group that gets Latino Latina kids on mountain bikes on skis or snowboards and climbing and all sorts of stuff. So that's super cool. Anyway, just, it's basically just me like freaking out and running around. That's what jank is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we, we made a movie and then it was crazy how it's all interconnected because Tommy C saw the movie on the internet, DM'd me that he liked it. And then we saw the tea and biscuits two premiere at the race in Tweed Valley. And I got to meet him and like talk about stuff and making movies. So that, it's like such a small community mountain biking sweet. And then at, later at the next race, like, cause he makes the Rocky mountain videos. He was like going to the same Airbnb that we were kind of trying to go to. And he was like, oh, are you going here? Like we just left like the, the whole kitchen's wired weird. And you might get shocked. And it was just funny how interconnected it all was. But yeah, anyway, jank. That is, uh, it's something. It's weird. It's whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. And we were chatting about this a little earlier, but we need to figure out a way to uh, get a beer holder onto my Geometron. <laughs> so I think completely doable. I think this is going to happen. Yep. Uh, well, this has been awesome. Been super fun going for a ride and chatting about everything that you've been up to. But before we let you go, we do wrap this show up by asking the guests if they have a big idea to share. And that can be absolutely anything off the wall, random idea that's floating around in your head. So we've had a bunch of those already, but you got one more? Oh, man. Um, I mean, I don't know. Like getting into mountain biking as more like a high schooler and like just kind of seeing that community welcome me like it's all about the community and I guess the big idea is like we got to keep that alive and I think it's actually like alive and well like that gritty like community like welcoming people helping them work on their bikes telling them ride your bikes to the trail don't take your sprinter van like I don't know whatever that is is I guess my big idea but uh yeah keep that weird janky mountain biker thing alive i i think i don't know if you've made it this far in the podcast you know what i'm talking about and i guess that's the the feeling the big idea does that make any sense absolutely and i'm very into it so thanks cheers for that cheers and uh this has been a lot of fun thanks for making it happen eric and uh keep on doing the janky stuff thanks man i really appreciate it all right that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, if you're enjoying these conversations, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts to help keep the show going and growing. I also want to say thanks to Eric for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody. <laughs>